Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, from French fries to snow plows, the global shortages continue. But are we starting to see the beginning of a whole new world for workers and the supply chain? Plus, you know what kind of soup you can never be short of? The kind that doesn't exist. And what is going on with the 5G rollout at U.S. airports? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. It's been a while since I've done a shortage report, but the shortages have continued and in some sectors are ramping up again. Beef, potatoes, lumber, even snow plows are all in short supply at the moment. I was talking to a friend the other day and she mentioned that our local grocery store was completely out of chicken. Just totally bare shelves, not a drumstick in sight. We both thought maybe she'd gone on the day before they restock the poultry or that this particular grocery store was having issues, maybe another one in the neighborhood would be better. After all, tons of drugstores and pharmacies in our area keep closing, so it's clear that stores are struggling. But what didn't occur to us in the moment, and absolutely should have, was that it was probably the supply chain. Meats and fresh produce are the toughest to find on grocery store shelves right now, but it's not due to a lack of food. It's a lack of people working at all levels of the supply chain between farm and store. Demand for groceries has risen 50% since the start of the pandemic, and yet the country's trucking companies are operating with 80,000 fewer drivers than needed, according to CBS News. That extends to a shortage of drivers for snowplows in the U.S. Many states are hovering around half of the workforce they need. As Eater put it, quote, Since the start of the pandemic, workers in many industries have been quitting their jobs in high numbers. Food workers across the supply chain have long been some of the lowest paid across industries and subject to terrible working conditions. Now they're facing burnout. During COVID-19, workers in meatpacking plants, food manufacturing plants, grocery stores, and restaurants suffered through outbreaks and deaths while being pushed to work harder to meet increased demand. In November, a month when 4.5 million Americans quit their jobs, six representatives from a broad cross-section of the country's food system told the House Agricultural Committee that the labor shortage is the number one immediate issue facing national supply chains. And then... Omicron hit. While food, trucking, and grocery companies were already scrambling to hire, now a more significant number of the workers they do have are staying home due to illness. And while vaccines have cut rates of serious illness and death compared to previous surges, even employees with mild or no symptoms are advised to stay home in quarantine to prevent the spread of the virus. End quote. In an echo of spring 2020, the meatpacking sector is being hit hard again by infections and outbreaks. According to Reuters, major beef producers Purdue and Cargill both slowed production in recent weeks. In addition to workers testing positive, USDA inspectors are too. And inspectors are one of the many individual roles that make up the more complicated than you might expect process of meat production, which a new study from Purdue University describes as the food industry that suffers a much larger loss in production compared with all others when even just one part of the process is disrupted. But those other industries are also being affected. Even for food that is produced domestically, the backlog at the ports is still slowing them down. Eater gives the example of bakeries that are having trouble importing spices from India, and farmers having to wait exponentially longer periods of time to replace equipment, like tractors. 
And if you live on one of the coasts and have been having trouble finding eggs, it's probably because most egg companies are based in the Midwest so that they can be close to feed supply, which is good news for retaining access to that feed when transporting everything is a headache right now, but bad news for transporting the eggs to the coasts. And just like last year, there have been weather disruptions as well. The blast of snowstorms throughout the east has affected the ability of grocery stores to receive and shelve stock. But Andrew Novokovic, an emeritus professor of agricultural economics at Cornell, told Eater that weather events can have far-reaching ripple effects. Quote, An ice storm that closes roads in Iowa, for example, could stall pork shipments to stores in warmer locales. A shortage of potatoes in Japan right now is partially due to a flood at the port of Vancouver. End quote. That potato shortage around the world is heating up, and fairly inconsistent. There's the issue at the Port of Vancouver affecting Japan most drastically. McDonald's restaurants there are limiting customers to small-size orders only. But South Africa is also short on potato chips due to bad frost and excessive rain, reducing yields of local crops, according to the Washington Post. And KFC in Kenya has said that they are out of fries due to shipping delays, although other restaurants in Kenya say that they have plenty of potatoes, implying it's because they source theirs locally. Many have actually taken to shaming and boycotting KFC for revealing that they import their potatoes. And adding to the ups and downs, last year the U.S. actually destroyed millions of potatoes due to lowered demand during lockdown. But potatoes aren't the only product being affected by weather. Lumber is once again out of whack. You may remember last year when the price of lumber flew so high that it briefly outperformed gold and Bitcoin. A pre-pandemic average price was around $400. In the spring of 2021, it got up to $1,700. Stinson Dean, a Colorado lumber trader, told The Atlantic that he would compare that to $17 gas prices. And while prices cooled down over the summer and into the fall, they're going back up currently trading at $1,300. Dean thinks the main culprit is the climate crisis. The Vancouver floods that also caused Japanese McDonald's potatoes to get stuck played a key role here too. But Dean says it started with a beetle infestation in 2009 to 2010. The beetles are a normal pest for the Canadian forests, but the cold winters usually kill most of them off. For too many years in a row, it didn't get cold enough to kill enough of the beetles. The beetles can cause the trees to rot, so they had to harvest way more trees than usual, most of them with a kind of cool blue stain from the beetles that Dean notes actually became a decorative theme for a while. He says the Canadian government then opened up logging aggressively to account for the glut of beetle-killed trees. Of course, this was just after the recession, so there wasn't huge demand in North America. Instead, a lot of the lumber went to China. But on top of all of that, the beetle-killed trees that stayed, because they couldn't all be cut down, increased the fire risk. 2017 and 2018 were horrific forest fire years in British Columbia, and Dean says the beetle-killed trees was like kindling. For the past several years, all of these factors have shaken up the lumber industry. Usually, Dean says, when prices raise too high, it bounces back down because there's plenty of wood out there. But that's not exactly the case anymore, especially with how many extras were cut down due to the beetles surviving and then how many burned down in excessive forest fires. But what really made the prices surge in the fall was that flooding in Vancouver. 
Dean said, quote, I think the second lumber rally was inevitable, but this started it early. You could pinpoint the bottom and the reversal in price to the pictures and the headlines of the flood. It destroyed not the trees, not the sawmill operations, but the infrastructure to get the lumber to market. End quote. He says they're about 10 weeks behind on shipping now, and there's just not enough wood out there to make up for the wood from British Columbia, the number one producing region in North America. His answer in the long term? Increasing supply through more sustainable forest practices. And that kind of thinking, long-term, sustainable, is being reflected in every sector suffering from the disrupted supply chain. While some of these issues will clear up soon, Omicron has reached its peak in some areas, weather-related events eventually bounce back, other aspects of these shortages might be a preview of a new way of life. Because while some sectors are reducing production and hours due to employees being infected with COVID-19, they're also doing so because so many of their employees have simply resigned and the companies are struggling to hire any more people. Novokovic, the agricultural economics professor, told Eater, quote, The great resignation is related to the pandemic, but it's not about being sick. It's about dealing with the consequences of workforce issues that finally reached a tipping point and got people thinking differently. End quote. Companies have had to figure out how to stay afloat with fewer employees, but those strategies might have to be sustainable for the long term, not just as quick fixes. There are a number of shifts that are happening that might be better for us overall. Things like sourcing food domestically and even hyper-locally so that shipping delays don't completely disrupt a supply chain. Also, a return to just-in-case stocking versus just-in-time, the low-cost model supermarkets were pressured to adopt after the rapid expansion of Walmart, basically stocking just enough to keep costs low instead of having extras on hand. And more automation, which means restaurants and stores can keep functioning with fewer employees, and in some cases, those who remain have safer workplace conditions. But there are potential downsides to all of these as well. I mean, after all, there's a reason none of these practices have been popular until the pandemic forced some of them to happen. Domestic sourcing, in the case of farms, means feed prices are up, and companies usually increase the price of the product at the store to make up the difference. The government can and already has been trying to help a bit with that, recently investing in small to medium-sized meatpacking plants which serve more localized markets. But then there's also the supermarkets themselves. Going away from the just-in-time model means needing more space to store products in warehouses, which will also up prices for consumers. And while at this moment, when workers are taking a stand against unfair working conditions and those who can are choosing other career paths, it might seem like automation is a good compromise. The argument could be made that the better solution is improving working conditions and pay for the humans, not eliminating their jobs altogether. Eater points out that this is a big question that academics, activists, and farmers in particular are grappling with at the moment. President and co-founder of Egg Innovations, a network of 50 farms, John Brunkwell, told Civil Eats, quote, Even if we get to a spot where COVID doesn't exist or it's very benign, it's going to leave a legacy of an entirely different manufacturing process. End quote. Ever. 
At FanDuel Casino, we know the only thing better than a win is a free win. That's why we made Reward Machine, the daily free-to-play game that gives you a chance to win up to $2,000 in casino bonus. We've given away over $50 million in free bonuses, and we're just getting started. Every day at 6 p.m., you get three chances to spin the Reward Machine reels. There are three ways to win. One, match any three symbols for an instant win. Two, collect symbols each day for a chance to win weekly prizes. Or three, win up to $2,000 if you collect three trophies. FanDuel has given away over $50 million to hundreds of thousands of people through Reward Machine. So what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Casino app by going to FanDuel.com slash PA3 and start playing Reward Machine today. That's FanDuel.com slash PA3. No purchase necessary. 21 plus and present in PA. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable casino only site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. So I've been watching the new Around the World in 80 Days miniseries adaptation starring David Tennant and loving it, by the way. And in the first episode, it's established that his regular daily lunch order is brown Windsor soup. Now, I picked up on the connotation of this being a boring option, but what was lost on me was the long history of the soup in British culture and how for many years it wasn't actually a real soup at all. Atlas Obscura describes brown Windsor soup as, quote, sludgy, stodgy, and devoid of discernible texture or flavor. It was a recurring comic stand-in for everything dreadful about British cookery, end quote. And over the years, it's popped up in countless places. Atlas Obscura describes it as being a recurring gag on the 50s radio program The Goon Show, and described in recipe books as a popular Victorian dish even Queen Victoria's personal favorite. It makes an appearance in a 90s Poirot adaptation, the unofficial Downton Abbey cookbook, and even the unofficial Harry Potter cookbook. Not that it's referenced in the source material of any of the above three, it's just that it was considered such a popular, old-timey, and quintessentially British dish. And old-timey might just be the right term to describe it, because like so many things we think of as being old-timey, it was never actually around in the olden times. Brown Windsor soup, it turns out, is just another invented tradition, albeit one that eventually kind of became real. Glenn Hughes, author of The Lost Foods of England, spent years searching through archives for evidence of brown Windsor soup in the Victorian era when it was supposedly such a hit, and he has never found a whisper of evidence for it existing, not until the 1920s at least. What he did find was a white, creamy soup called potage a la Windsor, which was invented by Charles Elme Francatelli, one-time head chef to Queen Victoria, as well as a white-brothed noodle soup called vermicelli a la Windsor. Now, funnily enough, there was also a product called Brown Windsor Soap, which Victoria did definitely use and mark among her favorite hygiene products. As Hughes puts it, quote, So you have Windsor Soup, which is completely white, and at the same time, you have Brown Windsor Soap. So the joke is you put the two together and you get something completely horrible. End quote. So for a long time, it was a joke, but it was a joke for long enough and far enough removed from when it was allegedly popular that common knowledge came to be that, oh, it's just not popular anymore, that's why you can't find it, not you can't find it because it never existed to begin with. 
So then, of course, many enterprising cooks did start making some version of it over the years. Jamie Oliver has a recipe for it, turning it from the mythical to the real, and perhaps a bit tastier than the legend would have you believe. And hey, speaking of soup that doesn't exist, Campbell's recently teamed up with experience-oriented retail brand Camp to release two soup-scented candles. Designed to look like their iconic red and white cans, even including a pull tab to open them like a real can, the candles come in chicken noodle soup and tomato soup and grilled cheese. And the candles are themed around the soup company's Snow Buddy commercial with snow people faces on the front and a Snow Buddy figure at the bottom of the candle that you get to keep when the wax melts all the way down, which sounds pretty cool. And even cooler, some of the proceeds of the candles are going to Feeding America. So you can't eat these soup candles, but you can help other people get the food that they need. And one more piece of fake soup news. The king of Cessine pas une soup de Campbell's, Andy Warhol, or rather his foundation really, recently teamed up with skincare brand SK2 for a new line of products packaged in gift boxes that look like VHS tapes and are decorated with the SMPTE color bars that Warhol was so fascinated by. So there you go, you can order what looks like VHS tapes but are not really VHS tapes, and what look like cans of soup but are not really cans of soup. It's 2022 and everything is a lie. Especially if you live in the U.S., you've probably heard the reports about airports opposing the planned activation of 5G networks across the country today. And the most recent update as of recording that Verizon and AT&T have begrudgingly agreed to pause rollout near airports and runways. But what is going on here? Why are airports opposed to the improved 5G networks? The Verge posted a great explainer earlier this month. Here's an excerpt, quote, Carriers and airlines are fighting over a particular chunk of spectrum from 3.7 to roughly 4.0 gigahertz, primarily used by AT&T and Verizon, sometimes referred to as C-band. T-Mobile is using a separate mid-band patch at 2.2 gigahertz, so it's largely sitting this fight out. This isn't all the 5G spectrum, but it's some of the best parts. The most powerful thing about 5G is the ability to transmit huge volumes of data over these mid-band frequencies, and this spectrum is the main way AT&T and Verizon are planning to do it. Crucially, we're at the last step in a very long process. If you bought a 5G-capable phone, you already own a device that can send and receive on those wavelengths, and there are already cell towers that can manage those signals. All that's left is to turn them on, at which point the C-band airwaves will get a whole lot busier." End quote. And that launch has already been delayed from December to earlier this month to now, and as the companies paid a crap ton of money for that spectrum, they are starting to get annoyed. But the Federal Aviation Administration worries that that 3.7 to 4.0 gigahertz range will interfere with their equipment, especially radar altimeters, which help pilots know how close the plane is to the ground and therefore helps with takeoff and landing, especially in inclement weather. So you can kind of understand how a mal functioning altimeter might be a cause for alarm. Now, 5G has already been rolled out in 40 other countries without issue, but some of those countries do have restrictions in place, like operating at lower power levels near airports or not implementing it within two miles of airports. 
The Federal Communications Commission here in the U.S. has apparently had three years to work this out, as AT&T and Verizon were both very quick to point out in the statements they released today. But between bureaucratic back and forth, probably the pandemic, and it being a sort of tricky issue, it hasn't happened. Here's more from The Verge. The FCC has a number of measures in place to prevent interference. There's a full 220 megahertz of clearance between the spectrum used by the radio altimeters, which starts at 4.2 gigahertz, and the new 5G spectrum, which ends at 3980 megahertz. The FCC even carved an extra 20 megahertz from the 5G holdings when this issue was raised in 2018 to give aircraft extra space. There are also several restrictions on how 5G towers should be configured near airports to avoid flooding the airwaves in areas where planes are landing. In a modern plane with a modern radar altimeter, it should be easy to avoid interference. The problem is, not every aircraft has a modern radar altimeter. Both sides acknowledge that at least some altimeters are affected by signals from outside the intended spectrum bands. And to be clear, this is a malfunction, but it's a malfunction that wouldn't have been relevant before C-band came online. As things stand now, it's not clear how many faulty altimeters are out there, or how they'll respond to a flood of 5G traffic. And because even a single interference-related crash would be tragic, it's hard for airlines to feel secure about the rollout. End quote. So now, 5G activation is happening everywhere except near airports. A decent compromise for now, but pressure is still on the FAA to finish identifying which altimeters will be affected and which won't, a process they have already begun, but until it's finished, even with the pause from AT&T and Verizon, a ton of flights have been canceled out of an abundance of caution. So if you're flying anywhere today or this week, good luck. Well, another long one today, so that is it for now. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.